Good morning, friends. Thankful to be together again this morning. And thankful that uh, Jeremy has accommodated me with this awesome pulpit. I'm going to be in Mark chapter 10. If you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn there with me. Mark chapter 10, and we're going to be looking closely at verses 17 through 31. By way of introduction, I just want to ask you a few questions to get you thinking in the line of thought that I've been kind of meditating on past week. Uh, What is that one thing in your life uh, that trumps everything else? What, what ha- has no competition in your life? Is it, is it your career? Is it your health? Is it your fitness? Is it your clothes? Is it your position as um, an authority figure in someone else's life? Maybe it's as being a spouse or uh, having certain things. What is it that gets you out of, the bed, out of your bed in the morning? That's the question I want you to think about. Uh, Today we're going to learn that how you think about things is a serious matter. In fact, it's so serious that it affects the outcome of your eternal destiny. How you think about things. So that's that's an important issue, obviously. The story in our text this morning uh, addresses a very important subject, and it's this barriers to your entry into God's kingdom. Things that will bar you from eternal life. (laughs) Is that interesting enough for you? Uh, So let's read the story. Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 31. And he, that is Jesus, uh, and he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up, And knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, Children, How difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible. But with God all things are possible. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, There is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. This is jam-packed and could occupy a few sermons. We're going to try to get it into one and get you out of here before noon. So bear with me. The structure of this passage is pretty straightforward. Uh, I'm going to lay it out as it is in in the text in front of us. And the first is this, a very, very important question. Uh, Some have said that the the key to success or the secret to success is asking the right questions. If you can figure out the right questions to ask, you're on your way to a long and successful career. And the young man in this story that I just read to you had a very pertinent question, didn't he? How do I inherit eternal life? Can you think of a more pertinent question 
This question suggests that he'd been considering the value of the temporary immediate versus the eternal future. Have you contemplated these things? The, the, the value between the temporary immediate and the eternal future. It takes some wisdom to consider such things. I know that one of the problems with our society is that few people think very far into the future and consider the outcome of their present choices and habits. It's just not common. You don't see it too often, especially if you look at the youth that fill our culture. They think these kind of things. If it doesn't affect me right now today, why spend time thinking about it? Who cares? Have you encountered that kind of attitude? Is that how you think, maybe? If it's not going to affect me today, then yeah. Well, this young man was different than that, obviously. In fact, he was an impressive young man. All three Gospels, uh, the Synoptic Gospels, mention him. Luke said that he was a ruler. Matthew said that he was young. And so we can learn from these three Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that this young man was influential. He was powerful. He had status, uh, which is why we refer to him as the rich young ruler. So I want, I want you to keep in mind one thing as we move through this text because it will help you understand Jesus' conversation with him. Uh, it comes on the heels teaching Jesus' teaching about the requirements of getting into the kingdom of God, being childlike, being dependent, being trusting, being humble. And so this is no coincidence that all three synoptic gospels plant this story of the rich young ruler immediately following the story of childlike faith, the importance of being childlike. But what we see here in this text is that this young man asked the right question. So let's think about asking the right question for a moment. There isn't a more important question in life, is there, than shall I inherit eternal life or how can I inherit eternal life? Inheriting eternal life, of course, is, is a conversation about the next life. What's it going to be like once you die, once you pass over and into that region of existence? How do we avoid a godless eternity? How do we avoid eternal death? How can we spend life after death in a favorable environment? That's what this man was asking. And I think these are questions that all of us want answers to, right? <laughs> this is why we're in the room this morning. Ultimately, Jesus said in John 17, 3, that eternal life was knowing God and his son, Jesus Christ. This is eternal life, knowing God and knowing his son, Jesus Christ. Now, I doubt that the young man was asking Jesus how he could get to know God, uh, because based on his response to Jesus' answer, he thought he did know God. I've been keeping all of God's commands since my youth. He, he thought he was pretty in tune with God, obviously. But he remained uncertain about his eternal future. So obviously he didn't know God the way Jesus said we ought to. So he asked the question, how do I get that? How do I get eternal life? How can I be sure of these things? And besides asking the right question, which he did, he asked the right person that question didn't he? <laughs> uh, even though this rich young man in our story had some significant things out of place in his life and out of place in his thinking, he did ask the right question and he asked it of the right person. This is critical. If you want to, to know about anything, about how to plumb your kitchen sink, you ask a plumber, right? If you want to know questions about your health, you ask a doctor. If you want to know questions about eternal life, you ask God. And that's what we see here. Even though this young man doubtfully thought Jesus of, as God, but seriously, God used this circumstance to provide you and I the idea that this is a very important person to be asking this question of, Jesus. And notice that he came running to Jesus. He must have known something about Jesus, right? He must have known he was a good teacher, one very acquainted with the law. And so he came running, eager to find Jesus' answer to his burning question. How can I inherit eternal life? 
Jesus' initial response to this young man was, why do you call me good? Only God is good. It seems a little harsh, but it was a subtle way to establish Jesus' authority to answer the question being asked. If you want to know how to get to heaven, God should be able to answer that question. And so he establishes right up front, why do you call me good? Only God is good. Hence, I'm good, you're right, I'm God, I can answer your question. That is a apologetic for the deity of Christ in this passage, but it's not the focus of this passage. And Jesus, of course, to get to our second point, gives us a very important answer, doesn't he? And this is what our, where I want to spend most of our time. We heard the very important question. Now we need the very important answer. We need God's answer. We need Jesus' answer. And of course, his answer came from the only one who gets to decide about eternal life, right? Again, John 17, verses 1 and 2 this time, Jesus said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Now pay attention. This is Jesus speaking, the same one who's answering this rich young ruler's question. Since you have given him, who? The Son of God, Jesus Christ, authority over all flesh to give eternal life to whom you have given him. Jesus decides. So if Jesus is the one who decides about who gets eternal life, this guy is asking the right person the question, isn't he? Yeah. So Jesus is the only one who has the authority to grant eternal life. So let's look closely at Jesus' answer. I'd highly recommend taking notes on this particular sermon, uh, even if not for yourself, for people in your life who are asking this same question. How can I be certain of heaven in my future? They may not ask that question, but they're all asking that question, even the atheists. In brilliant form, of course, as is Jesus' habit, he repeats the Mosaic law. And it seems odd to us, being gospel-centered people, as Dennis pointed out. He, he refers the man back to the law. How do we get eternal life? The first words out of Jesus' mouth after he says, uh, I'm good and I'm God, he says, obey the commandments. And that's kind of shocking to us gospel people, isn't it? <laughs> because we know the whole story. It, but it was a proper answer because that is exactly what the Old Testament taught. If you obey the law, if you adhere to the details, you're going to be okay. But obviously, no one could adhere, which was also part of God's plan. Judaism, you see, became enmeshed in works righteousness. Because of the law and the way it was taught, the way it was interpreted, they became enmeshed in works righteousness. They believed that crossing T's and dotting I's would guarantee acceptance with God, and so they did their best to do so. This is what Paul was talking about in Philippians 3 that was just read to us. He considered himself faultless, he said, as it related to the law. He fulfilled it perfectly, in other words. But Paul's opinion of his own righteousness changed completely once he met Jesus, didn't it? Which we read also there in Philippians 3. He realized that external righteousness, external crossing T's and dotting I's, doesn't impress God. God's interested with what? The heart. And we, we learned, learned that from Jesus a few weeks ago. Yeah. But when Jesus said, obey the commandments, this young man wasn't tracking immediately. And he said, teacher, all these I have kept since my youth. <laughs> he, probably, he probably expected Jesus to commend him. Well, there you go. Then you're on your way to heaven. Buddy, good job. Keep it up. It's probably what he expected. But God knows that external righteousness isn't righteousness. And he's known that since he gave the law to Moses. Hasn't he? And then Jesus ripped open the heart of this young man, exposing it for everyone to see. He said, one thing you lack, go and sell everything that you own, give it to the poor, then you'll have treasure in heaven. Now let's digest that for a second. Uh, is Jesus asking too much of this young man? Jesus knows he's rich. Jesus knows he's powerful. Jesus knows he's influential. Why would Jesus ask such things? Give up everything. Then you might have a chance. No doubt Jesus said what he did with great tenderness because right after he said it, Mark recorded that he loved this young man. He says Jesus loved him. So no doubt he said it with great tenderness, 
but it hits us in the face like a ton of bricks, doesn't it? At least it does me. And we need to understand that Jesus meant what he said. He wasn't just trying to be flamboyant. He was trying to get this young man into the kingdom. He was trying to help this young man see the importance of what he thinks about and how he thinks about it has eternal consequences. So let's, let's try to unpack Jesus' answer here. And I think we can do so by considering law and gospel. Law and gospel. First of all, law. Um, <clears throat> he responded to this idea or this title that the young man gave him, good teacher. Remember? He said, only God is good. And um, that's me, so you're right. You can call me good teacher because I'm God. Um, even though this isn't the focus of the passage, as I said earlier. But what else did he mean when he said, why do you call me good? Only God is good. What else was he trying to communicate besides his own deity? Well, I think Jesus was establishing the law in the mind of this young man and those who were listening, his disciples predominantly. <clears throat> if only God is good, what does that make the rest of us? Bad, <laughs> right? Oh, when we say, oh, he's got a good heart. That guy's got a heart of gold. No, no, he doesn't. He's got a dark heart. He's got a black heart. As nice as that person is that you refer to when you say, oh, he's got a good heart, uh, it's really not true. The problem is we have a bad heart. Only God is good. Jesus meant what he said. Only God is good. That makes the rest of us bad. Um, see, before the gospel can be accepted by anyone, that person must understand that they are not good in God's eyes. They're not acceptable. They're not okay. They're not just better than the next guy. They may be better than the next guy, but that's still pretty bad. According to Jesus, they're sinners. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. We're all sinners. What did Paul say? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So no amount of human effort or religious practice can make us acceptable to God. We're not good. And this is primary, basic, fundamental Realities of the law and gospel. God's word establishes the sinfulness of each of us, doesn't it? It establishes the holiness of God. Uh, but this young man's misunderstanding of God's word led him to believe that he could, in his own efforts, become acceptable to God. Uh, so, but what does the law teach about us as humans? It says that we are sinners unable to not sin. In fact, I, I doubt there's been anybody in this room in the last 30 minutes that has not sinned. In your Sunday morning best, you're sitting here as a sinner. So no matter how hard we try, we fail the high standard of God's law. Jesus said it was perfection. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Not just in externals, but that's included, but in everything internal. What you think, your motives, why you're in the room. Why you said what you said earlier, why you shook hands, why you smiled, why you did this, why you did that. It must be faultless, perfect. But no matter how hard, how hard we try, we, we can't do it. This is why Paul wrote Romans 3, all have sinned. And so understanding that we have all fallen short of God's standard, understanding that only God is good, it forces us to look for another solution to our separation from God. It can't be our goodness. It can't be in our efforts. It can't be in our religiosity. And that other solution is what? The gospel. There must first be law before the gospel makes any sense. There must first be an acknowledgement of sin before you can receive a savior. The good news isn't good until you deal with the bad news, in other words. So let's look at the gospel side of Jesus' statement. So as important and poignant as the rich young ruler's question was, it betrayed a deep-seated pride in his heart, didn't it? Look at his question again. What must I do to inherit eternal life? In other words, I can do it if you just tell me. I've accomplished all these other things in life. I mean, look how successful I am. Look how rich I am. Look how powerful I am. Jesus, if you just tell me what to do, I'll do it. I'm very capable. He was self-assured, self-confident, not dependent, 
the exact opposite of what Jesus had just taught with the child. <laughs> Jesus said, and this is where his heart was filleted, this is where the heart of this young ruler was filleted, he said, go sell your stuff and give the proceeds to the poor. Talk about filleting. That did it, didn't it? That's what this guy's whole life was about. <laughs> it was because Jesus knew this young man's heart that he said that. He knew that his possessions were foremost in his life. He knew that his influence was what made him tick. His life had become about what he had and who he was. This was the great sin in this man's heart. Even from the, old, the perspective of the Old Testament law, what does the second commandment say? Place no other gods before me. Did this young ruler have other gods before him, before Jehovah of heaven? Yeah, <laughs> like each of us. This man preferred wealth to God, for example. He preferred position um, to God. He wasn't dependent. He wasn't humble. He was independent. He was proud of his accomplishments. He didn't possess that childlikeness that Jesus was talking about just a couple of verses ago. If you're going to inherit eternal life, let's take this into the present. Let's bring this into the personal. If we're going to inherit eternal life, we need to put away any gods that stand between us and the one and only God. What are the things in your life that you struggle with that, that repeatedly kind of get in between you and God? Things that you struggle, um, that, that battle for preeminence, for your time, your resources, your affections. What is it? That's the questions, these questions are, that's the questions I answered at the beginning of the sermon. What makes you tick? What trumps everything else? What is that one thing, that God, small g, that stands between you and the true God, capital G? We all have those things in our lives. This is what we struggle with. If there's anything in our lives that we decide to place before Jesus, that is what bars us from eternal life, that thing. The rich young ruler was committed to his money, his power, his status, his comfort. Jesus was saying that even with scrupulous, faithful obedience, external as it is, to the Mosaic law, you will not gain entrance into eternal life without a faithful commitment to Jesus. Sell your stuff, give the proceeds to the poor, and then what? Come follow me. Seems like it applies to us. I don't know. I'll speak for myself. It applies to me. And here's where we need to be careful not to slip back into the law, not to be legalistic. I want to help you see the gospel clearly here. I think we need to realize that even as committed lovers and followers of Jesus, this is an ongoing battle, isn't it? Have any of you arrived, if you, if you have, if you have arrived at this place that Paul said he hadn't arrived at yet, Philippians 3, please talk to me after the service. I want you to write a book. I'll co-author it with you. We can make a lot of money. See, we all have ongoing battles, even as Jesus lovers, even as Jesus followers, we have ongoing battles with the flesh, with our priorities, with our affections, with worldly things that constantly get brought into that place of preeminence in our life instead of Christ Jesus. This is the one of the, listen, please listen. Uh, this is one of the biggest reasons we walk you through the confession every single week at Sun Valley Church. Because of this very fact, we struggle with this priority, don't we? And a time of our corporate confession and private confession on the heels of that corporate confession gives you opportunity to realign your priorities, to take this out, put Jesus there. Confess your sin and he's faithful and just to do what? Forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And in that moment, we're faithful with Christ. We are cleansed from our sin. In that moment, we are acceptable to Jesus and his Father. So 
even though we lose sight of what our priorities should be, what, who our priorities should be, this is why God blesses us with the gift of confession. I've, I've heard from some in our church who struggle with our uh, confession portion of our service. One person told me that it sounds like you want us to beat ourselves up every week. Not at all. We want you to run to Jesus every week. That's what we want. That's why we confess. It's a gift from God. Confession is a gift from God to us to realign ourselves within God's priority system for our joy and God's glory. You can't get there any other way. So if you're never going to confess your sins, you're never going to enjoy the peace of God. You're never going to enjoy the, the, enjoy the joy of God found in Jesus Christ and his forgiveness. What a difference it would have made if this rich young ruler would have immediately humbled himself before Jesus when he said what he did and replied simply the same way that, uh, and the same attitude that the father of the demon-possessed son had back in Mark 9. I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, that's what I want, help me get there. Would have that mattered? 100%. It would have changed everything. He wouldn't have walked away dejected and disheartened and sad. He would have got in line behind Christ and followed him to Jerusalem. But he didn't. He was prideful. He was independent. He was self-assured. Oh, to possess the attitude of that father in Mark 9, I believe, help my unbelief. This is what we come to, the heart we come with, to our time of confession must be the cry of our hearts daily. We must come running to Jesus as this man did externally. We must come internally running to Jesus, pleading for his mercy and grace, pleading for his forgiveness to be the sole occupier of that preeminent place in our lives. But this isn't how the young man responded, which leads us to our next subpoint: responding poorly to the answer. Jesus gave him an answer, he didn't like the answer. All these things I have kept, he proudly said. Amazing ignorance. Um, shocking, actually. Stunning lack of self-awareness. Um, have you ever, in your time of personal confession, say, Lord, I'm good on this one. I've, I'm, I think I've really been doing well the last month. I'm nothing. I got nothing. Why don't we approach God that way? <laughs> it's because we all have mirrors in our house. And most of us have spouses that remind us of the things we see in the mirror. And by the way, not the physical things. Um, but the important things. Uh, I have, I'm really good on this one, Jesus, the young man said. <laughs> uh, an amazing lack of inability to see the depths of his own sin, which resided in his heart. An amazing degree to which of misunderstanding of the law of Moses. Um, and by the way, the fact that he was a ruler probably meant he was a synagogue ruler. So he knew the law backwards and forwards. So this makes it more stunning. That he didn't know the heart of the law. It wasn't externals. It never was. And this ruler, this synagogue ruler, didn't know it? See, the law never stopped with externals. It had always borne down to the heart, especially, especially when, it, when it comes to living life, thinking about God, thinking about eternal things. The, the Jews, of course, misinterpreted and mistaught the law, when it, especially when it came to the sins of the heart. They were convinced that whatever happened between your ears was of no consequence. Uh, you can look, but you can't touch, that old thing. Um, they should have studied Psalm 119 a little closer. Shouldn't they have? Psalm 119 is about the heart. <laughs> There's no externals in Psalm 119. It's about the heart. 
which is why we loved it so much when we went through that. Jesus said, you lack one thing, go and sell all your stuff and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. After this, Jesus stated what it would take to gain eternal life, and this man was discouraged, he walked away, he couldn't give up his God of money, his God of possessions, his God of power. It says he was disheartened and he was sorrowful, he walked away. The verb disheartened is an interesting verb that Mark used. In the original language, it means a gathering storm. This man experienced a gathering storm in that moment. We don't know if it led to his salvation. I hope that it did. Um, maybe he was in Jerusalem after the resurrection. Maybe he heard Peter preach. Maybe at that point it made sense to him. Maybe this all became very clear at that moment. That's our prayer, right? That this young man finally saw Jesus as the only hope of his eternal life, the only means by which he would gain entrance into the kingdom of God. But in this story, the cost was not worth the reward to him. Uh, this is where Jesus' explanation is so helpful. Let's go to the explanation. This is our final point. And it's a very important explanation. <clears throat> Jesus' explanation of the answer given to the rich young man is critical information. If you desire to have confidence of your eternal life, the explanation of Jesus' response to the rich young man is critical. So let's break it down. First, there is a disadvantage of wealth. There is a disadvantage of wealth. Jesus said that it's very difficult for those with possessions to enter the kingdom of God or to enter heaven or to have eternal life. So where does that leave us, American Christians? There, there's been a lot of studies done on this. You've probably seen them. Do you know that everybody in this room is in the top 3% of the world's wealth? Everybody, the poorest in this room, is in the top 3% of the world's wealth quotient. Some of the pictures that Michelle showed us are like 97% of the world. We are the wealthiest, the richest people that have ever lived on the planet. Where does that leave us? Jesus said it's very difficult for us in this room to inherit eternal life. If that doesn't wake you up, I'm not sure what will. So let's, we need to unpack this. Uh, what does he say? The disciples, the disciples back then, and they didn't have much themselves, says they were exceedingly astonished. Do you see that in there? They were exceedingly astonished. Not only were they astonished when Jesus said it to the rich young man, but when he explained it, he said it's harder for a rich man to enter heaven than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. They were exceedingly astonished. They were dumbfounded. How can this be? Then no one can be saved, was their conclusion. And Jesus said, you're exactly right. No one can be saved. Did you see that? Did you notice that? Did you hear that when you first read that? <laughs> Um, look again at this text. It's easier, verse 25, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished to him and said to him, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man it's impossible. You can't. It's exactly the conclusion Jesus, Jesus wanted them to come to. It's the exact conclusion that we want you to come, through, come to when we call you sinners. We are in a hopeless condition, a hopeless situation. This is the bad news. <laughs> You're sinners without hope. But before I explain that, let me make a few points of clarification about Jesus' comments regarding wealth. Put a bookmark in your mind about where we are right now in the sermon. I'm going to add a parenthesis here to clarify some things for us uh, uh, affluent Americans because I think we struggle with it sometimes. First of all, first point in this parenthesis is Jesus was not making you know, a universal call to poverty or to asceticism. He's not saying you can't have money, you have to go live in a cave, if you don't you're going to hell. That is not what Jesus was saying. 
Uh, he's not calling us to a life of destitution. For example, Abraham was the wealthiest man on the planet at the time of his existence. Job, the wealthiest man on the planet. Boaz, on we go through the Old Testament. These were wealthy, God-fearing, God-following people. And they were, they were richer than all of us put together. So they were pretty wealthy. So wealth or money itself is not the issue, is it? No. And that, besides that, <laughs> being poor doesn't keep us from the love of money, does it? Do you know any poor people with the love of money? A few. Um, George MacDonald said this, it's not the rich man who, the rich man only who is under the dominion of things. They too are slaves who have no money, are unhappy for the lack of it. The money, the money one has, the money the, the other would have, is each the cause of eternal stupidity. We're all in the same boat. Having or not having doesn't make us any different. We all struggle with the love of money. So wealth has actually been used by God in many circumstances to be a source of encouragement to his people throughout the ages. How do you think this young man that we saw in the picture that Michelle put up there a while ago got his well-drilling truck? From wealthy people. That's how. Wealthy people like you and me gave so that that man could have that drilling truck. If you participated in it, you are participating in the kingdom of God and the blessing that that man is giving to all those people. So God uses wealth. In fact, he gives, he gives some wealth because he's given them the, the, the gift of abundance, the gift of generosity. It's sad when you see a wealthy person who doesn't have that gift or interest, isn't it? But wealth with godly perspective is a great benefit to those who hear it or those who are near it. Jesus' words are very appropriate in our day, I think. Uh, his words mean that wealth can be a significant handicap when it comes to eternal things. So we have a significant handicap in this room when it comes to eternal things. Our culture would say, maybe even we would say, that the wealthy are privileged. I wish I could be like them. I wish I could win the lottery. What would I do if I won the lottery? We go through that, you know, game playing in our mind. Jesus would say just the opposite. Being wealthy can present serious obstacles to your eternal life, to my eternal life. Why? For the following reasons. And this is at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. Like giving to a young man in West Africa so he can bless people. Lay for your treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart is. He also said this in Matthew 6, 24, a few verses later. Sermon on the Mount again. No one can serve two masters for either you will hate one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. That's why is it a, it's a disadvantage for us who have money, who are in the top 3%. Wealth can have serious effects on us. It's, it's so easy for anyone, including us Jesus-loving Christians, to become attached to material things, to look forward to that raise, that increase, that advance. Our vision is blurred by money to the point where we have lost sight of Christ, and when you lose sight of Christ, you lose eternal life. Remember what Jesus said, eternal life was knowing God and his son, Jesus Christ. We can slowly, slowly, the richer we get, lose that sense of dependence on Jesus. So what are we to do? We're still in the parentheses. So what do we do? How do we guard against this particular affection of money in our lives? Well, don't allow wealth to be our security. Are you okay with life because you're rich? Because you have a good life insurance plan? What makes you content with life? Is it because you have a bank account that's larger than most? 
Or is it because you know Jesus? And knowing that he promised you that you'd be okay, no matter what. So we need to constantly pursue Christ. Constantly seek to depend on him and not our money. Intentionally put that aside. And what do we, how do we do that, practically speaking? Besides an effort of the intellect, how about this? Giving some of it away. John Piper said in his book, Brothers, We Are Not Professionals, that when Christians get raises or come into some money, God does not intend for us to use that to up our standard of living. It's to up our standard of giving. So how do you fight a dependence on money? Give it away. <laughs> That's how. Not shore it up. Not build your portfolio. There's nothing wrong with that because you still can give and build your portfolio, which we should be doing, by the way. Um, we must use our wealth for God's kingdom. He saves people with money to use their money for the expansion of his kingdom. Are you doing it? Or are you like the rich young man who is all about wealth and making my life comfortable? I got a raise, now I can put in a pool. Which, putting in a pool is fine. But are you giving also, abundantly, sacrificially? If you can put a pool in a pool, it's after sacrificial giving. Right? Be generous. Give to God's kingdom. By the way, there's a great book out that discusses this in great detail. We gave it away, I think, in the first five years of our church. We had, uh, the book is called The Treasure Principle by Randy Alcorn. I asked him to come speak at our church back when we were meeting at the high school. And he said, I can't do that, but I'll send everybody in your church my latest book, The Treasure Principle. I don't know if you remember that. But we got, I think, 144 copies of this book called The Treasure Principle, and we gave one to everybody in the church. If you still have your copy, go read it again. If you don't, go buy it on Amazon. It's like eight bucks. All right? Spend eight bucks for a, a clear view of eternal life. <laughs> Randy Alcorn, The Treasure Principle. But here's the baseline of salvation. We're, out, we're back into the sermon, out of the parentheses. The baseline of salvation. What was Jesus saying here? He wanted them to understand that there was no way that in themselves, of themselves, they could be saved. This rich young man was lost. The disciples were lost and hopeless without God. And so he gives us here the baseline of salvation. He says, but with God, everything is impossible. Everything is possible, rather. With man, it's impossible. With God, it's possible. There's the hope, isn't it? There's our view of the gospel. With God, everything is possible, even your eternal salvation, even the forgiveness of your sins, even the most heinous sin ever committed by anybody in this room is forgivable by God because everything is possible with God. But without God, it's impossible. And he said this first, I'm no genius, but I know how to get a crowd and that's not it. There's no hope for you folks. You're losers. You might as well leave. It's not a way to gather a following. If there was ever a guy who was a potential follower, it was this rich young ruler. How can I inherit eternal life? He could have said a hundred different things, but he said, uh, you can't. See ya. That's what he said. <laughs> but thankfully, he added that one phrase, but with God, everything is possible. With God, there's hope. Um, he, he emphasized that only God can save. What a way to conclude his gospel message. We, we can't earn our way into God's kingdom, but we, we can't buy our way into his kingdom either. We must run to Jesus, the only one who applies eternal life to anybody. The only way to the Father, Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And then he, at the end of his, his little teaching with this uh, rich young ruler, um, he says some very interesting things. And I'll conclude with this, the rewards of true salvation. Have you ever wondered about this? Jesus says, uh, <clears throat> Peter says, hey, we've left everything 
to follow you. And Jesus says, truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers, sisters, mothers or father or children or lands for my sake or the gospel's sake who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Again, I'm not a genius, I'm not a mathematician, but I don't feel a hundred times richer than when I was nine years old and became a Christian. What in the world is he talking about? Well, <laughs> let's work through this point by point quickly. So Jesus went a, a little bit further um, to mention that only, not only does our individual salvation require God to act, but when he does act, it's exceedingly good. We need him to act to be saved, and when he does, it's fabulous. You'll be rewarded a hundredfold in this life, and then let's talk about the next. So sure, sure, acknowledge this with me. Uh, we'll need to walk away from the, wor the world. We'll need to walk away from our false gods to receive the gift of God in Christ Jesus, right? That's clear in this passage. We must walk away from our idols. But secondly, when you do, you'll receive a great return on your sacrificial investment of walking away. It's an investment to divest. It's an investment in eternal things to divest of temporary things. So have you left anything to follow Jesus, friend, those in this room who call yourself Christians? Have you left anything to follow Jesus? Has it cost you anything? Or did you sign on to a health and wealth offer of salvation? Did you sign on hoping it would make your marriage better, a better job, more income, a better status in your community? What, what were you thinking when you said you would follow Jesus? Peter said that they had left everything. Possessions, vocation, friends, family, he listed it. Um, these are the things that we must potentially walk away from if we want to experience the grace of God. This is difficult in our culture, isn't it? Because it seems that our lives are just as good as, if not better, than the lives of the people around us who don't know Jesus. But when we leave the world behind for Christ, God rewards that sacrifice, and I mean leave the world behind for Christ, we don't pursue the world any longer. Our trajectory is Christward, not worldward. In other words, where is your trajectory? Christward or worldward? What are you leaving behind? You can pursue money, fame, status, respect, and make that your life's endeavor, or you can pursue Jesus. Yeah. But Jesus here says that God rewards this kind of sacrifice, this kind of Christward trajectory. Um, because when you leave the world, you embrace Christ, you're, you're joined to a family, aren't you? It's called God's family. This room is full of God's family people. And Jesus made it clear, the apostles made it clear, that what yours is mine and, and what mine is yours. Uh, you are now my family. I am now your family. We are now brothers and sisters, fathers and children, mothers and children, spouses and spouses. We are being blessed by God a hundredfold for joining his family. Instead of the measly two or three siblings that you have because of your bloodline, you now have two to three billion in the world and all that they possess. Read Acts 2 through 4 at your leisure and see how this is supposed to work in God's family. So God's family is a sharing family and we must leave the world to experience God's family. Um, and then of course there's the next life. Are any of you looking forward to the next life? Or are you all so, yeah, we got it, one person raising their hand. I'm with her. There's two people in this room that are looking forward to the next life, and by just so happens that we're both physically injured. <laughs> um, friends, the next life is even a better reward, isn't it? 
Let me, let me read for you Paul on this matter. Paul said, to the, said this to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18. For this light momentary affliction, Ruth, this light momentary affliction, this is, this is light and momentary that we're experiencing, all right, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. <laughs> no matter how bad it is, it's temporary and minor in comparison. No matter how bad your physical body feels, no matter how bad your relationships have been destroyed, no matter how much money you've lost, no matter how much you don't have, it's nothing in comparison to the glory that we're looking forward to. Look how Paul ends it. As we look not to the things that are seen, present, but to the things that are unseen, future. For the things that are seen are transient, present, but the things that are unseen are what? Eternal. How do I inherit eternal life? Go all in with Jesus. That's how. Don't have any gods before me and follow me. That's it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this is our heart's desire. Those of us who love you and follow you, this is our heart's desire. We want to be those who turn our backs on worldly things and turn to you completely. And this is a daily battle for all of us. We, we must contend with our worldly affections. We must contend with our selfishness and our pride. We want to be childlike, Father. Lord, we know that this is only a gift that comes from you. And so, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, Father of heaven, grant this to us in your mercy and grace. Lead us to Christ. Cement us to him. Join us together um, with all other true saints. Father, we thank you so much for this great portion of teaching from the lips of Jesus, your true son and our savior. Amen.